Welcome to Lit Visions, a podcast about fiction, reality, and the space in between. My name's Drew, and I'm your host. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to tell you about the Lit Visions newsletter. It's where I publish essays, speculative fiction, and a series called News to Novel, where I suggest novels to read based on weekly news events. Levisions is my little home on the internet, and I would love to welcome you in. The web address is litvisions.substack.com. That's litvisions.substack.com. Thank you. Now on to the conversation. My guest today is Akhil Aryan, who is a technology entrepreneur and content creator. He has built and sold multiple businesses and is currently the co-founder and CEO of Altigo, a company whose software is helping accelerate Earth's transition to new energy. Akhil is also on a personal mission to enable everyone to do their life's best work. He creates content on topics related to business, philosophy, decision-making, and financial freedom. We first met in 2014 on a startup accelerator program at Google Campus in London, where we bonded over entrepreneurship, spirituality, and creative expression. In a recent catch-up, our conversation turned to literature, specifically Herman Hesse's novel Siddhartha, and we ended up discussing the book on this podcast. Siddhartha is a philosophical story that follows the journey of a young man who is on a quest for enlightenment. It's a novel that I first read as a teenager and have come back to every few years. It's always offered me new perspective, meaning, and even refuge during turbulent times. Now, what I really love about this conversation with Akhil is that it takes place in parallel dimensions. In the first, we're talking about the book. But in the second, we are applying the lens of Siddhartha to everyday life and work situations. I've always felt that fiction and reality share a powerful bridge, and episodes like this one only reinforce my belief. It was truly a pleasure speaking with Akhil. He is one of the most fascinating people I've ever met, and I'm sure this won't be the last time he appears on this podcast. So without further ado, here's Akhil Aryan. Akhil, what does Siddhartha mean to you? I think Siddhartha is a reflection of pain. It is a book that transports me almost immediately into a jungle. And I feel like I'm living the life of Siddhartha. Um, I can deeply empathize with his thirst. And I can feel his angst uh, with every single thing that doesn't work for him on his journey. And whenever I've read it, I have felt my mouth watering from his thirst of this need to transcend himself. That's really beautiful. Um, One of the things I found really fascinating when preparing for this conversation, going through the book, and also just thinking about you as a human, is that I feel I could immensely, I could immediately see a number of parallels, right? Like quite tangible parallels as well. I feel um, often we can read a book and like we can always, you know, figure out a way 
to superimpose ourselves onto that book and relate to the characters. Um, but I felt in your case, uh, there are a lot of incredible coincidences or parallels, right? So for example, um, you're an entrepreneur living the life of a businessman as the character uh, Kamaswami, right? You're both a student and a teacher, and we can talk a little bit about that, like let's say partner, Siddhartha, Pat Govinda, you're also, let's say, a sensorial being, right? I'm not saying that you're a courtesan <laughs> like Kamala, but um, you live in the world, right? And you, you love to enjoy the world. And we've had those conversations before. So I feel um, it definitely is a reflection. Um, I'm curious, without giving away too many spoilers in this conversation for people who haven't necessarily read the book, but um, Siddhartha, at the, let's say, at the end, right? Um, it seems that he's, you know, he's figured out, he's almost crossed that chasm from meaning making to absolute truth, right? Um, this is a very personal question, but where are you along that journey? If this book is a reflection of you, um, where are you in that journey? Where are you exactly in, in, in the book? Uh, that's, that's a great question. Where am I in the book? I would say I'm actually in the part uh, where he decides to leave Kamala and has to go back. Um, that's only where I am right now. So definitely, you know, I, I would say definitely feeling that that angst of of realizing that you know a lot of these not 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 a lot. And let's just say. To cross the chasm, that, like you said, it is a journey that you have to make by yourself, right? Meaning that no amount of teaching, no amount of indulgence, no amount of reading and and creation of wealth or changing of habits uh, or building of relationships gets you there. That's just a journey you have to go on by yourself. And there's also there's I think there are there are parallels to this, right? So it's not like he's feeling that thing, that sensation only at that point in time. It's also uh very similar when he decides to uh leave the I forget, I think it was the the garden uh, where he met uh Gautama and he left his friend behind and he started walking. And that moment of reflection where he was walking and stopping and walking and stopping. And at some point, there was a realization that, wait, I actually never invested the time to know myself. And the loneliness that he felt in that moment where he said that, look, I'm I'm not the son of my father and I'm not the friend of Govinda and I'm not the Samana and I'm not uh, any of this. I'm all alone uh, right here. And I want to know myself. Like that, that sense of determination, but also... Like it's a confusing feeling, right? You're lonely, but you're also feeling very connected. And so that sensation is something that repeats itself uh, when he completes the journey in the world, so to say, and has to leave Kamala to sort of come back. It's, I think it's a parallel uh, emotion. And that's where I would say I am. That's a really powerful place. Um, wh when I read that passage again, um, and generally whenever I reflect on that question of knowing yourself. I feel like it takes an immense amount of uh, psychological risk 
right? Um, and I don't think this is talked about enough or people realize. So, for example, when people think about like introspection oh, or self-inquiry or meditation, oftentimes the associations are uh, like with wellness, right? It's like sitting peacefully, breathing in and out and 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 boosting your well-being quote unquote but actually i really feel like knowing yourself is the most terrifying thing a person can do because you have to let go of everything right um at least in your mind not necessarily in the actual world but in your mind you have to let go of every single association and that's that's threatening right um but i think it, it's a beautiful yeah. place to be so i'm i'm really glad to hear that yes uh yeah it's it's a beautiful place, but it's also very challenging. So it's one of those moments of growth. Uh, when you go there the first time, it's definitely a lot more scary uh, compared to when you go there, you know, in the future. And you can sort of point out to me like, hey, it's one of those, another one of those moments, right? Um, and what I want to say specifically to this, I'm going to say two things. One is over the last two years, I've really come to know the word authentic. Right. Um, when we when we decide to express ourselves without fear or judgment, uh, and we just say, "Look, I have I have posed almost right enough, and now I will express myself authentically." Uh, what happens is there is a a brief period, I would say about six to 12 months of everything that was in love with your uh, persona or your, I would say, your, you know, the version of yourself, let's just keep it simple instead of using deep words, the version of yourself that you were posing to be, uh, but not really the authentic you, uh, starts falling away from your life. And everything that loves you for the authentic version of yourself uh, sticks around. And that's basically a cleansing process that you go through. And it's, it hurts because a lot of the people who love this other version of you are also people that you love because you posed in that persona for so long that you, you really, really become comfortable with them. Um, and what I want to say, you know, just taking a small segue from there into the exploration that I'm doing these days of, you know, existentialism uh, from Jean-Paul Sartre. Um, and he mentions something beautiful uh, in his book, I think, Being and Nothingness, where he says that there is a subject-object relationship in the world, right? So we're the subject. When we observe something, that's the object. And that's where basically observe the ob as well as the object, like that's sort of that's the relationship there. When you observe something, there's an object there. Um, until, until you observe someone observing you, and you realize that you're not the subject; you're actually an object for them. Okay, and suddenly you become very conscious of yourself, and you can't be. Uh, you know, your yourself anymore. You start posing. You want to be like a pristine, uh, poised, uh, beautiful object. And that's really the, I would say, to some extent where, you know, the notion of misery comes from. Because we perpetually live our life as if we were being examined as an object. Uh, and to avoid the judgment of people, 
we will pose to be uh, personalities that would be aesthetically or psychologically, uh, you know, good to uh, be around, right? And so this confusion of of thinking of ourselves as objects being observed by others and setting the right example instead of being the subject that observes is uh, the confusion that we find ourselves in. And so this notion of really exploring yourself as the subject and just take a step back to observe the world and its, and its beauty. That's the journey of Siddhartha as well, in my, my opinion. That's really interesting. And actually, I just realized that this specific dimension may have been missing from Siddhartha's life, or at least in the articulation of the book. Like, I don't recall him ever being concerned about external judgment, right? Um, I don't recall there being a part in the book where he was ever worried about, like, what people were thinking of him. Right from the very first uh, scene, right, when he was leaving the Brahmin village um, and disappointing his father, right? Um, I, I, he was, in fact, like, absolutely obstinate that he will go. Only with his father's blessings will he leave. And he stood all night, right, in the hut, waiting for his father yeah. to, like, grant him that blessing. Um I find that actually interesting that he didn't necessarily care too much about what people thought of him or external judgments. But what I think I really relate with, and I feel the book is also a reflection of this um, in terms of what you just said, that he went through multiple personas, right? He wore multiple, you know, different clothes. Uh, he, like, you know, the, the persona of uh, a beggar of a wise man, of a Brahmin, of um, uh, of a businessman, a man in the world, right? of a lover. The book has an interesting arc in terms of his own realization and relationships to those personas. Like, I think for the most part, he was quite aware of that identity and he used to laugh at it, he used to chuckle at it. Um, and then yeah. when he entered the, the city and became the businessman, he lost himself in it. Um, the sansara mm -hmm. that he, he talks about, right? And, uh, and, it, and it, as you said, it, it led to um, pain and misery and aging and suffering. Um, what was once a game to him, he used to laugh so much about like business and, 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 and the numbers game. Like some days he would you know, uh, lose money. Some days he would make money. And for him, it was just like uh, a plaything. Um, but then when he started to lose himself in it, that's when uh, the, he got down. And I guess the universe almost had to intervene in his life and, and make him realize. I, I want to switch gears a little bit and, and focus on the relationship that he had with Kamaswami, the merchant. Um, this was something I really wanted to ask you about because I found it a really, really fascinating passage, especially in the context of the current time in which we live and all the conversations that especially, you know, startup founders and people have around skill sets, right? And and and, and uh, what are the things that people should be learning today to future-proof themselves? Um, so it's the, it's the scene where he first meets Kamaswami, the merchant, and um, Kamaswami asks him, like, what can you do, right? Like, as a merchant, I can offer merchandise right and people will benefit from yeah. that merchandise but um what can you do you're a poor you know begging seeker um you don't really have anything to offer and siddhartha responded with i can think i can wait and i can fast and it turns out that these abilities bring 
great success to him. Um, putting on your, let's say, entrepreneurial hat for a second, how do you think about that, right? Just for example, if you were to interview someone at ION and you asked them about their skill set, they replied, I can think, I can wait, I can fast. Other than, you know, you being disappointed that play, they plagiarized Siddhartha, how would you respond to that? Okay, that's very cool. Okay, so that's a different question. So, um, my response to that would be, what do you think about? So when you say, I can think, what is it that you're thinking about? And uh, what do you do with those thoughts? And so talk to me about that. Because I think that there there is an element that is missing uh, from the words, but it's implied in the book. Even as uh, as you see, see, thoughts tend to manifest themselves into action. Okay. Um, if you have, it may not necessarily be a direct manifestation, like, you know, you don't necessarily do exactly, but if you, if you leave thought markers, sort of almost uh, is a guide to your body and your mind as to what action is to be taken, right? And this is why, you know, you have all these beautiful books, like, you know, um, as a man thinketh, for example, right? How your thoughts sort of manifest into your destiny and so on. Uh, and how really the thoughts are the fundamental building blocks, even of intention, um, and and so on. Though we can we can go into the word thought quite a bit. It's a different uh, rabbit hole. Uh, I would I will stay and say okay. My answer to that would be okay. What what thought? What are you thinking about? And what do you do with those thoughts? Because what I wish I I would hear back from Siddhartha or this person who I was interviewing in this case is that based on these thoughts I act. Because you cannot achieve greatness without action in any sphere. Like even if you want to achieve enlightenment, uh, you know, just like the book actually says in secretive ways, you don't get there with thoughts. You get there with observation and exploration of the self. You know, you cannot you cannot break it down with the with the acts of thought. Uh, because uh, I think that. The nature of a thought is one of dissection, right? Like you cannot have a thought without memory. Like in fact, the way I would define a thought is the movement of memory. Uh, and there is a memory. And when it sort of moves in a certain way, that's the birth of a thought. And memory uh, is... A result of conditioning, uh, both biological conditioning as well as, uh, I would say, psychological. Um, and so, the fact that thoughts you know, essentially come from conditioning, in my opinion, uh, they are really a, a tool that dissects into the whole, right? Um, meaning that. You know, I get I can go into the the notion of uh, thought. Like I said, that's a different rabbit hole. But what I was really trying to say is that I would wish for this person not only to say I can think, I can wait, and I can fast, but also two other things. One is I can trust, okay, and I can act. Uh, these are two things I would add uh, to the skill set of this person, um, which I think exist in the book, but they're not called out, right? Because I think just three is better than five in terms of that you write in a book. <laughs> uh, 
And, you know, you see that also in the conversation that he has with the Buddha, um, where he mentions the fact that, you know, you have, you have taught all of these people, you know, all of your teachings, but, uh, you know, they have not felt what you have felt. They have not experienced what you have experienced. And that experience is not a teaching that is an experience itself. And I also think that thoughts and teachings are a map, not vehicles. Okay. Your actions are your vehicles. And I also want to just close this by another loop uh, from, from Sark, which is uh, another notion in existentialism, which is that Existence, in, in the case of humans, existence precedes essence. What does that mean? Like, you know, when you think about any object in the world, you typically start by its essence or its job or its purpose or its function. And then you craft its existence. You know, whether it's a pillow, it's a blanket, it's a phone, it's a light, uh, it's a t-shirt, anything. It has an essence that it delivers and then it is crafted into existence. But when it comes to humans, we come into existence, and then with our actions, we define our essence. We define what the purpose of our life would be through our actions every single day. And so that's how I think about it. I think about it in a way that our thoughts are... are maps, not necessarily vehicles. And then our actions are the vehicles that sort of go in the direction of that map. Wow, we could go in so many different directions there. (laughs) I'm just debating which ones. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That all deeply resonates, right? I feel, and it's actually reflective, again, of the conversation in the book because he responds to Kamaswami um, by he, he responds with basically creating bridges between those different behaviors right so it's not just eating uh, it's not just uh, thinking waiting and fasting in isolation he says look you know why do we need uh, I'm paraphrasing a little bit but I think he, uh, he's, he said look if today I don't have money or I don't have any income or no one gives me arms, then uh, I can't eat, right? But that's okay because I'll fast. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. while I fast, I'll wait. I can wait. Mm-hmm. And as I wait, I will think about what needs I to happen wait. next. Um, and I think it's the interplay of those uh, behaviors that propels him forward right both as a as a human being as and a, as a spiritual being as well um i also found what you said about essence really really fascinating something random came to mind from a very long time ago um i was chatting with uh a friend about what is a brand right like how do you define this word brand either for individuals or companies we were speaking in a in a startup context at the time um and I remember them telling me that, you know, 
if you take away everything, right? Let's say you take away, uh, let's use your example, for example, Akil and Ion, right? You take away Akil, you take away all the people, you take away all the products, you take away all the batteries, you take away everything, right? Every physical aspect of it, physical or digital, every single asset. What is left is it's almost like this, this uh, imprint in the cushion, in, in the sofa, right? Where Ion was sitting. That is brand, right? And that is a person's essence. Um, what I find interesting about what you said is that like arguably some would say that um, of course we can influence our essence, but there's something unchanging about it as well, right? Um, I find that like, although let's say we're, we're born into the world, um, whilst you've changed a lot since you were a baby, right? You've gone through so many different personas, so many different uh, iterations of Akhil. Um, there's yep. still something unchanging within you, right? Um, there's still something that I think you felt that uh, when you were five years old, and it's wordless. It's very, very difficult to articulate, but that arguably is your essence. Um, so essence in the context that we were speaking of so far was really a representation of purpose or what it's meant to do slash be. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, not what it is. Right? So when we, if, if the question is I am, right? If, if that's how you define essence, then absolutely I agree with you. Because at a fundamental level, there is something that is unchanging, and that is who I am. Okay, that is not why I am. I mean, you yep. can say that okay, who I am and why, like why I am, is just a, a thought. Right? It's again, essence is effectively a thought. So I agree with you one thousand percent that there is something unchanging within me and within you, and that's who we are. That's not our essence. That's literally our identity. Um, and in the context of essence, as soon as you as soon as you label something as the essence or the purpose of a thing, you automatically this you sort of make a position that someone crafted. Like you know when you say that okay, this is the function of this thing then there is something that has designed this thing to do that function, right? And I think that the fact that we can say that there is something that is unchanging, uh, if you want to take the position of this being a god, which has like physically crafted the world and crafted humans, sure, then, you know, you might be able to call it an essence. But if you wanted to take it, if you wanted to sort of position it as really the unchanging, let's just say, energy, uh, that comprises all like that all all things are comprised of um then that is literally our identity and one might say and that that's where like things get very interesting and and like that's really where it gets interesting because many people would say that discovering your true identity is your essence hmm. you see what i'm saying like people would say look there is something unchanging beyond your body, mind, thoughts, feelings, emotions, and being able to discover that is your essence. Um, but that's, you see how, how that is a, I would say, a forced almost opinion, subjectively speaking. 
because one might say, okay, why? Like, why am? Why is that my essence and not being lost in samsara? Right? Why? Uh, why is that? Like, is there something morally good or bad? And that's really the source of all 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 dichotomies and all duality. Right? As soon as you say your essence is to merge or discover uh, the self beyond, you know, your mind, uh, you actually create conflict, and which is why um, I would say that. You know, you said that that thing that is, I would say, unchanging is very difficult to articulate. And I think it's not very difficult to articulate. It's actually quite simple. And it exists in silence. Right? Like that's where it exists. So the way to articulate it is to not speak. Yeah, you're right. That That's exactly what I meant, actually. Um, that beyond silence, it doesn't make sense to talk about it. But in moments of absolute, you know, stillness, there is like this tacit understanding of what it is, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, what we are. What we are. I find this interplay of questions that you mentioned really interesting, who I am and why I am. Uh, this isn't really uh, a question necessarily, but it's more just a reflection on the book through the lens of these questions, right? I, I feel as though um, Siddhartha started by with the question, why I am, right? Um, I feel in the earlier yes. stages of his journey. Yes. Go for it. Yeah, you know, uh, in the book, like you mentioned before as well, there, there are two things that I find very interesting. The first thing that I find interesting, it's almost as if the book starts at a mildly high level of intermediate level. Like that's basically where the guy is when he starts yeah. his death. So there's a there's a lot of stuff uh, before that, which is sort of presumed to exist in any Brahmin family. Like, hey, if you're born Brahmin and you've read the scriptures and you've, you know, you've been around your father and you've been in this community... Uh, and like so, you know, you're already at some intermediate level, and so that's basically where you start, right? Uh, and yeah. I also think like that's the reason why there is the lack of judgment. And you mentioned that, like, you know, there's no part in the book that talks about this guy thinking about himself as an object, and there's no, you know, self-infliction of judgment uh, for all the people that Siddhartha experiences. And I think that there are different ways to uh, interpret that. The way that I look at that is that that's exactly the reason why I love the book because it almost it almost so flamboyantly expects us to be clear, confident, and decisive on this path. Like you know, it challenges you uh, almost to be like, can you be decisive that I don't want to be part of Sansar and I want to explore this version of myself? It's it's like the book starts with a challenge. Right, like it, it literally comes in front of you and and sort of shows you the resolve of this young boy, who is was absolutely clear that there is no question in his mind uh, that he is that he is no second option. Right, such a bold way to start a book. You know, it's just I think that's really where it gets me. Like the book gets me at that point specifically. Also, in my case, because I feel like 
in some ways I'm at that level where I know uh, that I want to go on a path that is similar. Um, it's really, it really provokes you to say, are you really sincere about that decision? Um, so I find it very interesting. I, I like the fact that it starts with why I am because it's quite an intermediate level. Like there's, you know, they say that you can, you can genuinely qualify to get on the path of enlightenment when you absolutely want to. Right. When you decide that I really want this, that's when you qualify. Not when you get some blessing of a guru or when you go somewhere or like like none of that. The only thing you need to start is to genuinely want it. And like that's really where the book starts. It starts with him saying, I want this. So interesting. I feel like a number of thoughts here. One is um, what you said about like his sheer self-belief is not the right word, but all the way through the book, he's propelled forward through that like desire. And there is almost no indecision, right? Siddhartha does not procrastinate, right? Like when he's living the life of a Brahmin, he is a Brahmin. Right when yeah. he decides that I'm going to be, let's say, a traveling, wandering monk with the samanas, then that's what he does to the fullest. When he decides that, like, I am done with teachings, right, because I don't want to, um, ultimately, I don't want to become a teaching, right? Um, yeah. I want to become the supreme, I want to merge with that, like, primordial energy. Um, and a teaching, as you said, is 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 uh, a map, right? Um, mm -hmm. And I don't want to get lost in that map. I actually want to get to my destination, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. um, so that's really fascinating to me, the fact that there's almost no indecision and he does everything 100%. And arguably that comes back to the sincerity of seeking as well right like i think when we yeah. hear the word sincerity or seeking again our mind throws a lot of uh associations right um just through conditioning through our experiences that we have a definition of a seeker right someone who let's say lives in a certain way or eats a particular diet or follows a certain you know um kind of lifestyle and and the reality is that it's just about that internal sincer sincerity so um and that was really interesting to see him like before he went into the city to see him rationalize that decision. And yeah. when he left the city to see him also then rationalize the decision, because I think when he left, there was a moment. Um, it was a very short moment, but I think there was like some shame, right? That yeah. he was looking at himself and thinking, what have I become? <laughs> I have yeah. lost myself along the way. Um, I've become something that like, I was never meant to be, right? Because as you said, his starting point was so, let's say, like, high, right? Um, and and he, he did something, he, be, he became something that he never thought he was. But then he also realized later that, like, he needed that, right? Because ultimately, um, a lot of his seeking in the initial part of the book was still coming from, like, ego and ambition, right? Um, 
there was a clear divide in Siddhartha's mind between himself and the rest of the world, right? There was a clear, clear divide, even the way that he talked about his friend, right? Uh, the way that he thought about, like, you know, uh, the city, um, business people, all these people lost in this illusion. Um, I don't know where I'm going with this, but, like, I, I find that really, really beautiful. The fact that, like, the flavor of his ambition shifts there's no indecision um and his life makes complete sense at the end right like there's no other way yeah. for someone like him with that starting point to have ended up besides that river <laughs> as a ferryman right and 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 yeah and and finding and that's another thing at the right at the end of the book he, they, he when he meets uh govinda and um he asks him you know siddhartha can you Again, paraphrasing, but he said, "Can you can you give me something? Please just say something to me because I've they're both old men and I've been searching my whole life and clearly I've not found it yet." And he talks about how, like you know, it it, it feels like uh, you need to stop searching and and start finding because these are two different modalities completely. Okay. Yeah, I think look. Most of the most of the turbulence in terms of emotions that the book causes for me is in those moments of decisive action. It's just wow, right? Like it, it, it it's a it's a sense of admiration uh, that you see in people that have absolute clarity, right? And that's also why a lot of people join startups because founders tend to have that that vision that they're absolutely clear about. Um, and for me, what's very interesting, it's like super interesting for me in the case of Siddhartha is that it's always tomorrow morning. Like tomorrow morning, this is what's happened. Like it's not like, okay, I'm thinking about this and I'm building it up. It's the, the clarity is so, so instantaneous. Like it's, it's the next day. <laughs> it's never... It's never even, you know, a second after thought. Okay, let's think about this. Let, let's figure out what this means for me. Um, and I find that very interesting, the notion that it literally the next day. Um, yeah, man. So overall, I, I find that you were also talking about, you know, seeking... Uh, so, sort of finding and searching and I think that again like these are these are typically wordplays you know where uh, I also think like the book is is written to be engaging right it, it's effectively a book in yeah. the novel so like it, it, it's used words that <laughs> that make you introspect and reflect um, at a fundamental level though I would say that Truth is what is, and meaning is what we want it to be. Yeah. And when we seek teachings or direction or even meaning for ourselves in things, um, I think that all, any sense of meaning to anything is really a thought. But to seek truths 
and we spoke about this at some point, right? Like like proofs and meaning. Um, I think if you're in the search of truth, you have to observe. And I and I you know there's an interesting way to that I think about this. Uh, just speaking to my mother this morning about this, it was very interesting. I was telling her that you know imagine the you know this entire sansar uh, is sort of let's just say. Um, Imagine that there was a door, like a door, a window that put you, like allowed you to exit the sansar for a second. Okay. <laughs> and she said, okay, uh, if I exit, where do I go? <laughs> where does that door lead me to? And I said, mom, that door leads you to a hall, like a room that allows you to observe the sansar. And you are in the sensor, you are very much engaged in it. But as soon as you go past that that window, you are you're conscious of, of your observation of this sensor. That's what happened. Um, and I think that, that that was an interesting thing for me because I was able to draw a parallel between the conversation again that Siddhartha had with um with Gotham but where he said that you know your teachings are amazing they they are they are complete in a sense that you've been able to create this beautiful relationship between cause and effect of everything and it's perfectly well explained and it makes sense uh, but there's a small like there's a small fracture right like there's like a small exit uh, and that exit is the ability to get out of this loop of cause and effect I'll be able to exit that and observe it, right? And that's basically what you've experienced. And you can't explain that. You can't explain that fall because it's a, in the notion of this explanation of cause and effect. It is an exit door of sorts. Um, yeah, I know. Again, going on a tangent here. But I find... I find that if if one is sincere about this journey of seeking truth, then there is a habit of observation that must be cultivated um, and not one of logic or meaning. And you have to suspend yourself in disbelief for some time to be able to explore that. Well said. I feel like meaning ultimately is a process of, you can think of it as almost like a mental or constant psychic acquisition, right? Where you keep adding things. <laughs> you keep adding things to make sense of them to then feel some kind of like uh, satisfaction or peace that, okay, that makes sense. And that brings me some level of comfort. Yeah. And, uh, Truth um, is, it's not even necessarily letting things go. It's not the, the opposite. Um, I think it is, it's much, much closer to just dispassionate observation, um, watching yourself. Um, as Siddhartha finds at the end of the book and throughout, actually, he just starts witnessing himself, right? Um, there was a, 
I really love that passage. You've already mentioned it. But when he when he talks about how he will no longer be instructed by the yog, ved, right, or any doctrine, um, I shall learn from myself, be a pupil of myself. Yeah. I shall get to know myself, the, mis- the mystery of Siddhartha. And he looked around as if he was seeing the world for the first time. And I've, I, 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 that's, that's so beautiful. Just to switch gears a little bit. Go, sorry, go ahead. I wanted to tell you about uh, a small sequence of sentences that I came up to summarize a lot of the learnings that I've had on my spiritual path, reading a bunch of different books and, and you know, just exploring you know, some of these exercises, even myself. Um, at some point, Malvika and one of her friends, Malvika, of course, my wife, uh, and one of her friends were in the car and we were talking about this and they said, okay, can you can you condense all of this into like a short section? Like, how would you explain it to someone who wanted to learn, uh, you know, all of these things in, in, in a sort of short sequence of sentences? And I and I took a shot at it. I mean, of course, it's it's just like a fun thing, but I thought that it related well to this passage that you just uh, referred to. You know, this notion of you know, look, I don't need the the yoga veda or the you know the different teachers and the masters, and I you know, I need to observe myself and learn for myself. And it made me think of that sequence. I'm gonna I'm gonna say it just for fun, so that you and anyone who's listening. Uh, gets to experience it. So here's how it goes. I said, things happen. We give meaning to them. Meanings are a creation of thought. Thoughts are movements of memory. Memory is a result of conditioning. Conditioning can be overcome by awareness of being conditioned. Awareness is a result of observation. And to observe, you don't need a guru. So that was my sequence of sentences where I feel like you can observe and that will lead you to the key. Of course, I'm not saying that out of personal experience as someone who's found the truth or some something along those lines. But I found that to be a nice summary of a set of books that I've read on this subject. That's really nice. I'm, I'm just reflecting on that. One thought that immediately came to mind was how with a spiritual teacher or a master there's a lot of stories of how they would often distance distance themselves from their disciples for the very reason that you've just mentioned because they also don't want a disciple or a seeker to get lost in the act of seeking right or or to attach uh the master's identity to the truth that this is the ultimate goal and said it's not again they are just uh almost yeah. sounds reductive but tools right almost just like accelerating this this fascinating uh reaction 
this fascinating process. They're just um, catalysts in a sense. Um, and I do agree with you that like you can be your own catalyst, right? Um, more is not necessarily required. And it's not less that is required. It's just being <laughs> is required. And also, of course, like, you know, it's not something that's really we'll get anywhere by discussing on a podcast, but it's still, it's still, it's still intriguing nonetheless. Yeah. I wanted to switch gears and ask you about like a character who plays a really, really big theme in the book, but we haven't necessarily talked about too much so far is, is Govinda, mm. right? Um, what are your perspectives on Govinda? How do you relate to this person? And, and, and finally, um, how, do you what are your takeaways from observing Govinda's journey, like alongside Siddhartha's journey and their different approaches to learning? Yeah. What a beautiful character, Govinda. Firstly, right? I think that just like any great I would say expedition that one goes on. There's always this notion of some sort of hero and then the, the support structure around that hero that enables that expedition. Right? So you think about Lord of the Rings, you think about Star Wars, you think basically you think about any great expedition that existed. There was there was some sort of a hero and then it's a force structure around it. But in this book, it's very explicit. You know, I think that Govinda is very explicitly someone that is highly admiring um, Siddhartha. And he's clear that, hey, if I can just be even close to him when this person achieves enlightenment, you know, I want, I just want to be able to be near this person, right? There's like a deep uh, attraction and admiration there. But I also find that as the book progresses, he genuinely becomes an active personality in Siddhartha's life, not just in pure delusion, right? Like there is, there is almost like an interplay of conflict there where he'll challenge Siddhartha, uh, you know, from time to time, not just sort of be in pure delusion of following him to its ends. And this is why I think that Govinda's path is not as linear as it may seem. Okay. Mm -hmm. I definitely think that it also goes through its own, uh, you know, swirls and, and twists and turns because he really has to reinvent his personality as someone who was a pure follower uh, of Siddhartha. Uh, then saying, look, I also have to make sure that I achieve this for myself. And if that means parting ways, then, then that's that. And even though that decision may not have come from him explicitly, you know, he still lives with that decision. And I think that there is also, there's a complex emotion there, right? There is this, <laughs> there is, you know, if I took it in startup terms, like you, you, you meet a visionary founder, you're like, yes, this guy's got it all figured out. Like, you know, I want to be part of this company. <laughs> right and then you're you're having challenges with your series a funding and you're like wait is this guy like does he have it all figured out 
Like, why are they growing fast enough? So there's this there's this beautiful doubt that creeps in, uh, and there are these uh, you know other companies that might want to hire you, and you're sort of interplaying with that. So he's he's such a great character that brings texture to the book. Uh, but I find a real, I mean, I'll say, in, in so many ways, a real friend for Siddharth, right? Like, like that's what I would say. Because, you know, friendship is not just blind support or blind loyalty. There is some freedom there for yourself. There is freedom for your friend, for them to go do what they want, even if it means being away from you. There is, like, that's what I would call, in a sense of true friendship there. I love that so much. I, I, I'm so glad you mentioned that as well because I feel um, it's so easy to juxtapose Govinda and Siddhartha and and almost classify Govinda's path as the more linear one, right? Almost like the lesser path. Um, and I've been guilty of that as well on my last reading. I, I, I didn't think that consciously about Govinda. And then it just occurred to me when you were when you were speaking that this entire novel could have been written through Govinda's lens, right? And it would have made an equally fascinating book, actually, right? Um, possibly an even more intriguing book, actually, because Govinda's path was not linear. And there were moments of subservience and, let's say, uh, um, just almost blind following. But there were moments when he absolutely departed, right? Like when they met Gautam Buddha, and Govinda realized that, no, like, um, I will be with this teacher now. And and what was fascinating, I, I found, about Govinda throughout is that, like, he was able to recognize the truth, right? Or at least when someone else had seen it, which I think is still a beautiful art, right? It's not easy. Um, it's not easy to actually have the the eyes... And the and the awareness to see that to see that someone has found that like peace, right? Um, if he saw it with Gautam Buddha, which is why he stopped in the grove, right? Um, he saw it with Siddhartha at the end. Mm -hmm. I remember I, I really really love that like final scene because he's really you know he's confused he's confused by what Siddhartha yeah. is saying he's like this guy seems crazy. Right, like none of what he's saying is making sense to me. Yeah, it's not sound as sweet and as magnificent as Gotham Buddh. <laughs> this is odd, but like the peace on his face, like the the light in his eyes is undeniable. Um, and so like I'm 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 willing to listen, and I think that's such a beautiful quality as well. Um, yeah. Texture is the word. That's a beautiful word that you use. I feel Govinda adds an incredible amount of texture in the book. And I think he's almost like this, uh, almost a stabilizing agent, right? I feel like Siddhartha, yeah. it's, otherwise we would get lost in Siddhartha's world. Yeah. I found like, yeah. I found a sense of relief whenever Govinda came back and he grounded, you know, uh, yeah. grounded Siddhartha and, and the novel. And, uh, and I feel like Ask that's the what... Questions that need to be asked. Like, can we yes. ask this guy the questions that need to be asked? Yeah. Um, the one thing I found hilarious was that, like, he couldn't recognize him on two different occasions. And the cynic in me that sometimes comes out when reading, like, how? Come on. <laughs> like, even if you've not seen your friend, you must have been able to, like, recognize him. But that's okay. That's uh, ultimately, it is a novel. And um, 
And the point is the the metaphor of Siddhartha's change was so drastic, so dramatic that Govinda couldn't even recognize him. But um, I think it's a beautiful friendship. It's it's one. It, it's a lesson in friendship as well. I feel like something I found interesting was that obviously it was written in a very very different time, and not as much technology, not as many tools for interaction. So like Govinda and Siddhartha barely met, right? Thinking about it, they met a couple of times in their life when they were ch- when they were young young Brahmins in the village. Then when they spent time with um, the Samanas, then only on a couple of occasions after that, right? Um, literally in the forest when Siddhartha had left. And yeah. I feel like um, that's also just a beautiful reality that it's not a function yeah. of like, you know, constantly like checking in on each other. Like <laughs> us. <laughs> exactly. I mean, but this is, this is uh, I feel like a beautiful way of connecting as well to discuss this book, which is why I, I, I wanted to do it. I thought, what what better way than to to uh, discuss Siddhartha? And it came up in a random con- in, in, in a random conversation we had, right? Just about like what you're reading. Yeah. Um. So, yeah. really appropriate. I wanted to ask you a little bit about rather rather than ask you just to share like the context in which Siddhartha was published. Um. I'm not I'm not sure how familiar you are the the author Herman Hesse um but apparently um he was like i think faced a lot of depression in his life he was a very very intense seeker very intense right from the very beginning um from from his early years um and i think he even took a break during writing the first and second part of siddhartha just because there was just so much like inter turmoil um i found that really interesting because it felt like he's almost using this novel to explore his own questions, right? Um, yeah. It feels like the novel is an excuse for Herman Hesse to like <laughs> arrive, um, and and I love that. I always love that when I feel like an author is just writing almost a letter to themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like that's those are often the most beautiful works um, of literature. Yeah, man. Uh, I don't know enough about uh, Herman Hesse to be honest, but I can imagine that. I can imagine someone writing this book as a self-reflection and also as a, a as an outlet for for himself. Um, but you know, a lot of a lot of this. So let me explain something. You know, the way that I look at it. You know, there is this notion of the sky representing the state of your mind and wearing the clouds be the thoughts uh, that come and go, right? That, that's an analogy that's used uh, many a time when you're meditating. And I can let thoughts just observe them in the temple. And you can also run that different way and say, okay, sometimes there's a thunderstorm. You know, sometimes there's like a thunderstorm and you can't see the sky. Right. And it's just clouds. There are thunders and there's rain and you can't see the sky. But that doesn't mean the sky isn't there. Right. It doesn't mean that the sky isn't there. At some point, it stops and the clouds go away and the sky is back there. One of the interesting things that I was recently exposed to was 
a flip of that, right? Like, what if the sky didn't represent the, the sort of say, good in the world? What if it was the pain and suffering that was always there? And it was just the, the moments of joy that came as clouds and went away. <laughs> and those moments of ecstasy <laughs> were the thunderstorms. Okay. And there was actually a constant sense of uh, confusion, depression, uh, suffering, pain in our life. And like, what if that was the, the scenario? What if, like, what if it was not the, the way that it's typically uh, you know, portrayed? And then, okay, that's very interesting. Um, it almost got me thinking to a point that if that was the case, then then it's really a question of choosing the pain you want in your life. See, you know what I mean by that is like if if pain is the constant, when I say pain, I mean in this case, I just mean like, you know, let's just say depression or suffering of some sort. Uh, and you say, okay, if that's the constant, if that's not the, if that's not the clouds that are coming and going, if I will live with it forever, um, then I can choose what what kind of pain and suffering I will live with. So what does that mean, right? That means you could choose to live in the sansad, okay, with its uh, volatility, right? Which gives you a certain set of pain and suffering, right? And gives you momentarily, you know, these thunderstorms of ecstasy and these clouds of whatever, bliss. Um, or you could go through this painful process of seeking yeah. to, you know, like you can choose which, which suffering you'd like to go through of, of trying to find your way out of sensor. Right. And in both of those paths, you can imagine a seeker experiencing pain, depression, suffering, but it's different kind. Yep. And like, that's the choice you make. The choice you have to make is just which pain you want be for, you know, let's just say the next decade, if not your entire life. And I can empathize with the author in having chosen a path that required the cleansing from sansar. Uh, and I can see how that leads to depression and it's nothing to, to feel morally good or bad about. It's just that, you know, we're subconsciously choosing the suffering of sansar instead of the suffering of salvation, in some sense. <laughs> That's a really, really powerful and beautiful note to end on. Um, one last quick question for you, for anyone listening. Um, and I should mention that clearly there are a lot of spoilers <laughs> in this conversation. Um, I'll probably have to mention that at the start. It's the first book discussion that I'm doing on Lit Visions and figuring out a format. But I feel like perhaps spoilers are just inevitable as well because we don't want to bound ourselves, right? Um, I think we, we need the the freedom to to move through the entire book and certain parts of it, whichever happen to like capture our imaginations, right? Um, but in one line, why should someone read this book? Drew, there is only one good reason to do anything in this life. And that is because you want to. 
the only reason why you should read this book is because after having listened to this podcast, you really want to. And if you want to, you should. Perfect. Thank you, Akhil. This was such a pleasure. Thank you so much, Ru. I love it. Thanks for listening to Lit Visions, a podcast about fiction, reality, and the space in between. If you enjoyed this episode, then you'll love my newsletter, where I publish essays, short stories, and a series called News to Novel, where I suggest novels to read based on weekly news events. Lit Visions is my little home on the internet, and I'd love to welcome you in. The web address is litvisions.substack.com. That's litvisions.substack.com. Until next time, have a beautiful week filled with fiction and possibilities.